History of Art, a podcast where we delve into the most obscure part of art history. Hello, dear listeners. I'm your host, Naja, and in this podcast, we try to shed light on the studied parts of the history of art and visual culture. This episode is the start of a very special mini season that I have been working on for the second iteration of the podcast, which will be a deep dive on the subject of the golden age of illustration, a subject that deeply fascinates me and that I'm extremely excited to share with you. From folklore, fairy tales, books and posters, the world of the printed medium was one that was exiting domination on the world of art and had a reach that fine arts didn't quite have. And I'm very excited to explore all of this with you, my dear listeners. In today's episode, we're going to start by introducing a bit the golden age, the historical context, in which it flourished, as well as understanding the movements of arts and crafts and into the world of the feminine artists of the golden age, we have quite a whole lot to cover. So, without any further ado, let's begin. Let's start by talking about the golden age of illustration and simply setting the scene that we are going to explore for the next five episodes. The golden age of illustrations is that period of 50 years between the 1870s and the 1920s, where the medium of illustration was at its high peak, especially within the mind of the general audience. The art of illustration was an incredibly popular one. And to be honest, it actually continued to be until roughly the 1950s, the 1960s, I would say. At which point, uh, photography slowly started to replace illustrations, as it was cheaper to commission photographers instead of illustrators. But But these specific 50 years of the golden age of illustration was a time where the limelight was shining on the medium of illustration and it was incredibly valued and so were the artists from fairy tales illustrations to art nouveau posters and art deco style magazine covers illustration was incredibly successful When it comes to the golden age of illustration as it is known, it is definitely concentrated within the West, specifically in England, France and the United States, as well as various European countries. Of course, 
maybe in me. We will indeed try to explore what effects colonialism and imperialism had on this subject. But rest assured that I will bring a perspective that will but rest assured that I will bring the perspective that will constantly challenge the imperialist and racist social contracts of the time and the way it affects how we understand that art. That era is fascinating in how the art of illustration in itself goes in so many different iterations and directions, and I am terribly excited to be able to explore this incredibly rich and prolific period of art history. The historical context of the Golden Age was one where the technological pro- progress made it possible to print easily and very quickly, as well as in a mass-produced quantity to keep up with the demand for books, magazines, prints, and posters. The printed medium became easier than ever to create and more popular than ever before. With the advent of lithography, woodblood printing, and other technologies, which made it all the more easier to create several copies of the same illustration, it thus became something that was so easy to do. The artists could simply sketch and draw something very quickly, and print it almost equally as quickly. When I say quick, of course, this is the 19th century version of quick. And it was not spontaneous in the way that it is now, but it was faster than it ever had been before. Illustration existed in many forms during that era. Caricature in the daily journals, small and intricate art at the beginning of a chapter, The golden age of illustration was marked by the beginning of the highly fast-paced book publishing industry, a rate that just kept on accelerating and accelerating to a speed that's seriously now almost quite anxiety-inducing, but it's just a pace that keeps on being pushed faster and faster. It is no surprise then that illustration, graphic design, and prints were highly in demand. When it comes to this era of art, I think we should start by the movements of arts and crafts, which was started in the United Kingdom by William Morris in the second half of the 19th century. It was a movement that was trying to be a counterpoint to the extreme industrialization and mass production of the time, and wanted to offer an alternate way of life and of thinking than the generally accepted one. When something happens, whatever it is, there is very often an opposite reaction to it. It is an almost certain fact of human nature. And this is a very familiar idea to us 
especially with the prominence of movements such as cottagecore and the slow life movement. But when it came to arts and crafts, it was really in response to the to that mass production and industrialization that really began to take over the Victorian society. It was thus a natural response to these social anxieties of the time, in a world that was changing extremely rapidly, and at a speed that had never been quite reached before that. Another important component of the arts and crafts was that they thought that the craftsmanship in the factory-made item was not up to par compared to handmade and crafted objects, and really advocated for well-made quality objects where one could really, really appreciate the work and design put into creating it. This movement really was the heartbeat and spirit of the time, and ended up putting a lot of groundwork for many of the subsequent art styles in this era, that is the golden age, but also just generally as a mindset, a way of life during the latest years of the 19th century. A mindset that would become incredibly influential. It advocated for a simpler way of life, a mindset and an appreciation of the value of the things we make with our own hands, of the talents that craftspeople have, something that, I think, we have so clearly lost nowadays. I think especially when it comes to fashion and garment making now, permit me to go on a bit of a tangent here. But I feel like that sort of things really reminds me of how I feel about this particular subject. The same way the English people felt in how the industrialization had banalized the style of the decorative arts, as well as being constructed with a lower craftsmanship, taste and endurance of material. Might this be familiar? We can also see this with fast fashion as well, lower quality objects that last for a shorter amount of time. There was a devaluation of the work of craftsmen that came with the general attitude of the 19th century industrialization, something that is definitely coming to a peak in our current time. People wanted their clothes and decorative items faster and for fashion of the price. But also very often, people were not able to afford more than that. In the end, I guess there's truly one culprit and it is the system that we live in. When it comes to clothing now, the level of quality and craft is extremely low. And it is not expected for any garment to truly last for a long amount of time. So often someone will buy a $5 t-shirt that will simply disintegrate after one or two washes. And I will not get too much into that because this is a subject that is 
that I'm incredibly passionate about and this could last for hours. And this is really not what we're here to talk about, but there is a link and it is still important within the context of the arts and crafts movement and the mindset that they had during the late 19th century. But just in general for us, this is terrible and shitty on three separate levels. First of all, the only way something can cost so little is because costs were cut at every level when it comes to fabric and material, but most importantly when it comes to human labor. And knowing that most of the people who are employed to make these garments so cheaply are women often of the global south. So this is not only an issue of labor and union, but also of racism and sexism. Secondly, when it comes to clothing, it has never been cheaper in the entire history of the world to buy. Fabrics and clothing used to be extremely costly, and rightly so when you consider the amount of knowledge and work that goes behind them, which means that the way we view clothing now as entirely disposable and easily discarded is an appearance in the whole history of humanity. And there is also a reason why fashion is the most polluting industry. So, this is also a consequence of overconsumption when it comes to fashion. A mindset that is extremely detrimental to the environment. And look, I know that I'm far from perfect on this side of the conversation. I absolutely adore clothing and fashion and fashion history. It's something that is very dear to me and it's something that I have been trying to work on on a personal level to be more sustainable. But... The more important thing is to support unions and to support fair wages and fighting for everyone and for the garment makers to be paid fairly. The prices of the clothing will surely go up because of this. And then hopefully people will consume less and it will end up being better for the environment. And lastly, fast fashion made us genuinely lose the art, the craft, the immensely complex and exquisite fabrics and embroideries and the art of tailoring. Clothes now don't fit us because there's no more local tailor that will hem your trousers and fit the garment the way you need it to fit. And because we have lost also so much knowledge when it comes to traditional garment making that are part of everyone's culture as a fact of colonialism and imperialism I can reference that specific Indian fabric that was 
completely obliterated from history because of the British imperialism. They stole the fabric. And then the knowledge of how to create and weave this specific, extremely exquisite fabric has been violently and cruelly stumped and voluntarily and the knowledge has been lost forever because of British imperialism. And let someone remind me to put the article on that particular subject in the show notes, but but imperialism is extremely violent and the we can see that these cultural items have been now largely abandoned in favor of a homogenized fashion culture with trends that cycle faster than ever before when fashion trends used to last 10 years and then 5 years and then 2 years and now it's like every few weeks there's a new micro trend and it's honestly exhausting and it's harrowing when you think about the fast fashion consequences anyway Sorry for this rant. So, so during the 1860s, artists and craftsmen such as William Morris and Edward Byrne Jones were at the forefront of the movements of arts and crafts. That was a way of counteracting the very fast industrialization of British society in the 19th century. The aim of that movement was to put the focus again on the quality of craftsmanship and taking the time to create something beautiful and long-lasting. Their main focus was on interior design, jewelry, textiles, furniture, and basically all kinds of arts and crafts where one could really take the time to create something from their own hands. One of William Morris' specialty was the wallpaper, which had a brilliant use of patterns and colors and motifs. As it can be possible to see, the arts and crafts movement was a very domestic one that was very closely linked with the arts of the house. The arts and crafts movement was thus on an ideological level, but also definitely on a very aesthetic and visual level. The ancestor of so many art movements and styles that we will be discussing in this mini-season, movements like Art Nouveau and Art Deco and illustration in general in the later years of the 19th century and the The movement declined itself in different ways, depending on where it was happening. The movement originated in the United Kingdom, and there is a very specific British aesthetic to it all, with the artists such as Burne Jones, Morris, and John Ruskin being at the helm of how this movement developed there. And there's a tendency to really think about these movements only where they started and industries in England. But the movements of arts and crafts tapped into something important, that desire to have something beautiful, 
well-crafted and durable, of something that had soul and heart and creativity and was unique, and not simply a product of factories and capitalism and and this is something that I think has been incredibly felt during the 19th century and all the way through today with the constant progress of mass industrialization and the devaluation of culture and historical significance and simply the skill that humans can have. There is an importance to something made by hand, to something that took the time to be created. So the philosophy of the arts and crafts movement traveled far and wide as this anxiety about the fallout of the industrial revolution were universal and dealt with the really important issues of industrialization, capitalization, and the alienation that people felt toward their work and strive to emphasize the importance of hand craftsmanship instead of the mass-produced objects and products that were of a lesser quality. For example, in Japan, the Mingei movement translated literally through the crafts of the people was the artistic movement that philosophically aligned with the arts and crafts in terms of wanting to put the focus again on traditional craftsmanship instead of the frenzied taste of rapid mass-produced items. The Mingay movement was happening in the 1920s and 1930s, especially with the figure of Yanadi Soetsu, who wrote the book the beauty of everyday things, pioneering this movement, this focus on everyday life and the importance of craftsmanship and the desire of a slower life and the enjoyment of the domestic sphere far from the rapid speed of urban life. This focus on traditional folk art can also be seen as a defense in the face of colonialism and imperialism, as a way to retain and protect identity in the way of forced assimilation and conformity, especially when the default is always set as Western and white. The protection of folk arts can be a protection of the uniqueness and authenticity of culture, against the global uniformization of imperialism and capitalism. While there is definitely net positives to the general globalization, a better awareness of the world around us, more access to information and knowledge, there is no doubt that this sort of forced the common uniform, devoid of personality. In a way, the cult of individuality has made society devoid of originality. The traditional garments are beautiful and colorful, sometimes minimalist, sometimes maximalist, but always, always wonderful. 
I say all of this, but I, I have to say I'm definitely someone who also really loves a good suit on anybody. But I think there's a difference between a well-made Savile Row tailored suit created by a tailor who spent years learning how to create the perfect lapel or how certain fabrics hang and a sheen garment that will be drawn out in, in a couple of weeks. There is something sad about how traditional garments all but left our daily clothes at, only to be worn on special occasions. There is this seemingly uniform quality to all of culture in a sort of one-dimensional, cultureless mass. And this is why I think history and art history and fashion history and the preservation of culture, of cultural items, is extremely important. So the valorization of craftsmanship and the arts is extremely important, not only on an academic level, but also for our souls to embrace the complexity of what humans can create. But even if the general mindset of the arts and crafts was one that touched the mind of several people, I think we should also talk about how international arts, quote-unquote, influence the arts and crafts, namely the influence of the Damascus school, a 16th century school of pottery. So the towns of the Ottoman Empire and these were the objects that were collected and admired by Western artists. When I say that the English were collecting those, I mean that, for example, the painter, Lord Eaton, brought back several rooms worth of tiles from destroyed and crumbling buildings in Syria. Maybe I'm going to be controversial, but doesn't this look like stealing to you? Especially that these tiles are still in England in the Arab hole of the Leeton House Museum. I know this subject is super complex and full of nuances, but one thing should be clear and devoid of all complications is that the items that were once stolen need to be given back to the country they were stolen from. The complexities and nuances lie not in this simple fact, but in the unraveling of imperialism and colonialism and encouraging more historians, art historians, archaeologists, museum workers, archivists, and conservators from those countries for them to be able to learn and experience their own history. All the items that were stolen from colonized countries during the colonization should be given back, and, and this is something I feel very passionate about, 
and I am so done with hearing people giving arguments like how the locals do not know how to take care of these items and so they are safer and more exhibited if they stay in this country or that country, which is which is bullshit and we all know that. I'm so sorry for the language, but I think it's an argument that is extremely dumb. When you account how much knowledge and resources were stolen from these countries, and that they should be given those artifacts back, as well as if you don't think they know how to take care of them, then teach them. But I think it's simply a question of doing the right thing. It doesn't mean that it will be immediate, but simply the thing that needs to be done, on top of pain. Anyway, before I move on, I want to take the time to recommend the podcast Stuff the British Stole, which has various stories of stuff that the British stole and is hosted by the amazing Mark Finnell. And it is an absolute joy to listen to that podcast, so I hugely recommend it. There is also something to be said about how these are very historically feminine crafts that are devalued when done by women, but somehow are worth something when made by men. We continue to see this tendency even to this day. There were definitely women being part of the movements of arts and crafts, but more often than not, they have been relegated to history and forgotten, while the men have been celebrated. We immediately think about Dante Gabriel Rossetti, one of the main painters of the movement of Free Raphaelites, but might forget about his sister Christina Rossetti or his wife Elizabeth. And the movements of arts and crafts, despite focusing on mostly traditional feminine crafts, is no exception. Their contributions to these art genres are often largely ignored, and that is a broader issue of sexism across the board in art history, but it is something that has been definitely changing in the past decades, even though there is still a long, long way to go. Artists such as Mary Landis, who was such a talented stained glass artist, or Mary Morris, the daughter of William Morris that constantly lived with his fame and notoriety overshadowing her work, even though she was as talented in her own right. What is very interesting is that these women were very involved in textiles, art, embroidery, all of which are very women-centric crafts and occupations, and I have a lot of opinions about how the arts of textiles have slowly been devalued and underrated. I just think it is not a coincidence that it is a primarily female occupation that has been devalued compared to other fine arts. And illustrations as a whole was also often considered as one of the lower arts compared once again to the world of fine arts. 
But in that era, there, there was definitely an importance put on the art of illustration. The golden age of illustration was an era where the art of illustration was really valued the way it deserved, in my opinion. Beatrice Potter is one of the popular women illustrators of the later years of the 19th century. And she is well known for her incredibly charming illustrations and adorable anthropomorphic animals and their adventures in the rural region. It is all very cottagecore and representing an ideal life in the countryside. Her art was created really from her sense of perception. She copied what she saw extremely well as she had a very keen sense of observation. She also had a very pointed interest in sciences, ranging from geology to fungi. Natural sciences were a passion for her, and it bled in the way she approached art, which was in a very rigorous and almost scientific manner. Beatrice Potter's affinity for natural sciences and scientific illustrations is something that was not unique to her. Edith Holden, the author of the Country Diary of an Edwardian Lady in 1906, was thoughtful of really lovely botanical and nature illustrations in her books. All of that is very exemplary of a slow pastoral life. Her book was simply a record of her daily life, starting on with the month of January, with notes about plants and animals, quotes and poems, and when you read that book, it definitely feels like a snapshot of a particular moment in time. Captured by this woman artist and the way she spent her day and, and what she experienced in her life, Butter was someone who did the best of the situation she was in. And even though she was dismissed as a scientist because of her being a woman, but she never let that stop her from living a fulfilled life on her own terms. Her art was beautiful, precise, and heartwarming. She weaves tales of wonder and magic and was in that generation of illustration of illustrators that really focused on the children's book and on a younger audience, something that we will dive a bit more into later on. The Adventures of Peter Rabbit were a staple of children's picture books of the late 19th century and early 20th century. It was a lovely depiction of childhood, a delicate watercolor vision of the countryside. And yet there were reflections of the era she was living in, of the late Victorian era, and also the themes of repression and restriction were very prevalent in her words, a subject that Mandy Elderwild explores in her thesis, Victorian Restriction, Restraint, and escape in the children's tales of Beatrice Potter. Quote-unquote, Restrictive mothers and constrictive clothing caused the most trouble for Potter's child 
animal character. Though they become trapped by garden walls, tree trunks, banyard equipment such as trolls and barrels, natural predators including humans, and of course, clothing. It is true that unnatural use of clothing that animals are kept from acting as instincts allows, the restrictive mothers fashioned after the upper middle class Victorian mother want to domesticate their children and force them to confine their base instincts in the clothing they wear. The art she was creating was an escape for her feelings about life, maybe in a way she did not even comprehend herself. Being an illustrator was a career that was accessible and acceptable for a woman, and it gave the opportunity to a lot of women to be financially independent in a time when there was not a lot of opportunities for women to do so. It was a career choice that was okay for a lady. Kate Greenaway was an artist that, to me, really embodied the influence that the movements of arts and crafts had on the general mindset of the late 19th century and on the artists of that era. Greenaway is mostly known as a book illustrator, but she was an artist who knew a great amount of commercial success during her time. She was generally an artist who succeeded, from tales to book illustrating. Greenaway really took advantage of the engouement and love for the printed medium that was shaking the United Kingdom in the late 19th century and I think her illustrations are incredibly in advance on her times, with clean and precise lines, very reminiscent of the lines of Art Deco, almost 40 years before it was popular. She was a big artistic influence on several artists after her, notably one Dutch illustrator, Henriette Wilbert Lemaire, that I have no qualms about pinpointing as one of my personal favorites, and not only in terms of the golden age of illustrations, like just generally her art is so cute, so lovely. I just think there's a very delicate charm to her art that really appeals to me. She also has a very long body of work that mainly included books geared toward very young children, and she was extremely talented at, at capturing that very specific atmosphere and innocence of childhood. We will discuss the ramification of the creation of the concept of childhood in itself in a later episode, so please do keep that in mind. But there is a very carefree and sweet atmosphere to Wilbert Lemaire, art that makes it incredibly soothing to look at. These women artists of the late 19th century and early 20th century were creating a new vision of art, each and every one of them embodying the visual diversity of the era. And it is then that I remember the essay 
Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists by Linda Nutting. And I think about how all these women were incredible artists that sometimes actually knew a very certain success in their field, but the but the world of art history does not value the art typically made by women. And it does not value the art that comes from the art of textiles, ceramics, and embroideries. And it does not value the quote-unquote low art. But these women were insanely talented and their art continues to be inspiring and compelling. And I hope people will discover them again and again. And here we are done with our first episode of the mini season. So thank you so much for joining me. Next month, we will be talking about decadent art and aestheticism. And we'll talk about Oscar Wilde and Jesse Marion King. And it will be a very lovely time. So before we go... I put a bunch of relevant resources on today's subject in the show notes. As always, all the relevant images will be on my on the social platforms at imaginarium underscore pod on Instagram as well as on Twitter. This podcast was written, narrated, and produced by yours truly, Naja. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so on patreon.com slash And I'm trying a new thing. I also now have a coffee. Whichever one you want. I'll leave both links below if you want to support my work. I want to take this opportunity to thank my patrons. Nelly, Celia Sala, Changlita Pechin Wiyan, Jar, Sam Hurst. Jamieson Dredd, as well as Natalie. Thank you so much for making the work I do with this podcast possible. Today's recommendation of the day, 1995, Pride and Prejudice. As I'm currently watching this one episode at a time, every day after work, it is amazing and it is very accurate to the book and it is always such a good time with Jane Austen. So I highly recommend it on this and the reason why. And on this, I wish you all a very lovely day, evening or night. And I hope to see you again very, very soon.